This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Welcome to Headscarves and Good Yarns with me, Amal Abdullahi. The show is all about talking about race, diversity, and everything in between, all in the hopes of empowering a more empathetic Aotearoa. We talk about all these huge life things through the lens of people's lives and stories. I hope every yarn you take a wee gem from it and expands your heart and mind just a wee bit more. Kia ora everyone, I am super super excited to welcome Alice into the space and to be in conversation with me for the next um, hot minute or so Um, and Alice I feel like you'll be able to introduce yourself better than I will so I'd love to um, invite you to tell us more about yourself and what hats you wear and your whakapapa and who you belong to and what communities you champion. There was a lot but <laughs> just to give you little bits to kind of to to tell us a little bit about yourself because it is so overwhelming when someone's like tell me about yourself and it's like where do I start there's so much to me. <laughs> We all contain multitudes, yeah. Um, well, kia ora. Thanks very much for having me. Call Alice Canton to Kuingua. Um, I am um, I'm currently in uh, Tamaki Makoto in Auckland, where I live and work. Um, I originally was born on the um, west coast of the South Island. Uh, grew up in Christchurch. So um, I grew up, I'm a South Island girl through and through in, in many respects. Um, my whakapapa to, uh, on my father's side, who is a sort of settler, comes from a settler sort of four-generation New Zealand um, Pākehā uh, from Wales, and my mum is from Sarawak um, in Malaysia, so uh, is Chinese-Malaysian. Uh, so... Yeah, I, um, I'm a theatre maker and a theatre director. Uh, I've been working in theatre and the arts for um, probably the better part of 20 years. And, um, yeah, when I'm not making theatre or um, in the studio making work, I work as a sort of a facilitator and as an um, experience designer. So... I'm in try and uh, be an architect of conversations and a way to help people have those conversations. So yeah, that's me. <laughs> oh, that's such a beautiful way to introduce yourself. And I love what you said just then about being an architect of um, conversations because I feel like when you have true genuine facilitation and you let people into the space and they feel like they can be there for themselves that that is exactly what you're doing um so that is beautiful and I am super excited to have you on the show specifically because I know you have that facilitator role and you're such a creative and you're such a magical storyteller as well um so I first met Alice back in 2020 and she was one of our speakers at the Silverline mini fest and I yeah I just remember sitting like in the bay just watching you from the side of the stage and you were just so amazing the way that you connect with people and the way that you share those stories um is so wonderful and uh that's kind of where I want to start I just want to talk about stories and storytelling with you and um what stories did you like really gravitate towards to when you were younger I'd love to know oh that's quite 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because when we talk about stories, you know, there's a kind of a classic, the stories of um, storybooks, television, film, you know, theatre. Um, my father was a great lover of opera, so I kind of grew up with a canon of quite sort of, the, sort of a great, you know, storyteller, uh, epic storytelling, I guess. Um, and working in, in the theatre, you, you do sort of, I think you inherently understand story as something that is constructed and represented um, and so that acute awareness of who are the characters, what is the narrative um, arc or what is the narrative framework, who is the intended audience and what is the effect that the story is having on that audience becomes a, a really, um, it just becomes a part of when you know what you do. Um, my mum's a real great storyteller, so I definitely grew up with her um, telling the same stories over and over again over our childhood. And, you know, like I grew up in the 80s and 90s, I didn't grow up sort of, you know, going and visiting my family a lot in Malaysia. In fact, the first time I went to Malaysia, I was like 25 or something. Like I just never, yeah. So um, I think for me, uh, you, you connect, I connected to my family and to my mum's sort of genealogy through her like verbal storytelling um yeah I I think my parents sort of dissuade us from consuming television or popular sort of like popular culture narratives um which when you're a kid and a teenager you're like oh I just want to be cool and like watch soap operas and like sort of be I just I just wanted that same kind of goes for music as well but I now look back on that and go I don't I think they were really desiring for me to have a, a be widely read be widely um and un, to understand um things beyond my generational understanding of um of storytelling so yeah um so yeah I guess that's probably that's probably it in short um I would say probably what prevails with my taste for storytelling is definitely work for storytellers that are able to, um, oh, how do I put this? It's like they're able to elucidate something that you've never quite been able to yourself, mm. you know, and when you see it or hear it, it's then impossible to unsee it or unhear it because they've painted something that has a sort of indelible mark on you. Um, yeah, so I, I, I guess that's sort of it. I definitely, I think also this is going to sound quite cheesy, but like as a biracial person or a person that came from like a multiracial background, I think I was always looking for stories that elucidated that sense of otherness as well. <laughs> You know, so maybe it wasn't like I wasn't looking for a Chinese story. I wasn't looking for a, um, you know, but like stories where otherness was like really acutely embodied. I, I think I've probably always sort of gravitated to that or um, existing in spaces between. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And not just in stories, you know, art, um, film, the all of, all of it. Um, yeah.
Oh, you, the way that you've just framed that, it just really brought me back to um, a particular moment in my teenage years that I really, really forgot. And I kind of would love to hear your um, thoughts and feelings and your experience in this as well. The way that you were talking about how we, with powerful storytelling, it just like highlights something for you that you've been experiencing, you're feeling, um, and it's not until they word it in that way or it's put, uh, portrayed in that way, you're, you're like, oh, my gosh, like, like it's a, your brain kind of explodes a little bit. And I'll never forget, um, I must have been about 13 or 14. And it was one of those, like, silly teenage books. But for once, it was about a hijabi. And her name was also Amal in the, in the book, too. And I was like, <laughs> I literally like jumped for joy in the library and uh, I read it so many times like between that Friday evening and like the Monday morning when I had to return the book before school I read it so many times and it gave me so much hope and clarity and strength and um you're so right the way that you've worded it with powerful storytelling it it does that to people and so I'd love to hear um from from your experience like when was the like first time or the early experience of you coming across a story and whatever form that it was and that kind of spoke to this otherness that you have highlighted I'd, I'd love to hear yeah it's a good point because I know that moment you're talking about it like you actually you go oh wow and you were never looking you didn't know you were looking for it until you found it right you never knew that you felt mm-hmm. invisible until you were revealed you know it's like and, and in some ways that's a really it's it can be really hard I think because you don't realize how invisible you are until your your likeness is is in stark contrast to something and then all of a sudden it's like oh I didn't realize that I was never I I was never present because I was in uh, yeah because I simply didn't exist in accordance to a kind of a a mainstream narrative or a western narrative or you know whatever we're talking about being the 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 dominant um voice here um and uh, you know and I think for example just like plainly we talk about this a lot with um uh, visibility with um, say actors or visibility for um, performers right because they're the most present um, way we can see this I mean uh, I did this is going to sound really like abstract um, but when I was at art school so it's not a story so much as a concept but when I was at art school so this was like in my early 20s I um I discovered this like concept um Duchamp who Marcel Duchamp who's like a famous you know he's a famous artist visual artist he um had this idea called infrathin which is is some is a term that can only be described through examples of the concept. It's, okay. it's like, yeah, yeah, I know, right? It's like Talk well, me through it, I've never <laughs> heard of this word. Well, I'm excited, and, and it's actually very hard to find information on it. But um, yeah, because it's it sort of this, yeah, it sort of exists pre-internet. But um, in the way that, like, if you look at principles in Japanese aesthetics, like again, it's like um, it can be described through like. Things like Shibui, 
is like the loose strands of hair at the nape of a neck as a woman leaves a bath and grabs her kimono to answer the door. You know, like that's what that is. But, you know, oh. what is it? Who knows? But that feeling is is embodied, um, is, is, is what is embodied there. So um, uh, Duchamp's infrathin is like um, the warmth uh, it's like the scent of a mouth that has smoked a cigarette or the warmth of a seat after somebody has left it. Or, you know, it's like talking about this kind of like the thickness of a shadow. These are all sort of these imperceivable realities that exist, but you can't kind of quite put your finger on it. So the reason that struck me so much was it made me consider you know, in visual arts terms, when we're talking about, say, positive space, which is the thing, or negative space, which is a thing around. And um, what about that imperceivable space between positive and negative, right, which is that really thin veil around a thing. And um, as I started to consider that, I started to think about that in relation to being bicultural or multicultural and going, it is possible to be both and neither things, right? And uh, look, now we have a much more sophisticated, you know, way to talk about um, the binaries and how they don't serve us, right? Like the black and the white or the, you know, male or female or whatever, you know, not helpful. But at the time, I just didn't have a language to be able to communicate that. And so that got me really excited at thinking about existing in the in-between um, and anyway, so, you know, that's less of a story and it's more of a concept which I have found myself searching for or being gravitated, like gravitating towards it um, since. I mean, actually, weirdly, I would say like surrealist, like surrealist novels um, that are about this like hyper real adjacent parallel universes tend to me to speak to my existence as well as, as an other person. So, you know, there's that too. And I think there's a bit of like, I think we've had this conversation within queer identity as well, like when you feel like you don't quite fit in those spaces as well. And then queerness isn't just about um, gender or sexual orientation, but it's an entire psyche that one kind of carries through through all these sorts of spaces. Anyway, we're getting really off topic here, Amal. So <laughs> No, um, I love it, Alice. You're taking me to so many different places. But that's so interesting that you mentioned the binary um let me know if I'm speaking for you but it kind of sounds like from what you're saying that you've got into this place where you're just like I can be both and everything and and none and that's a-okay um and kind of implying did you all well you can you could tell me um when you were younger did you feel that pressure to be like one or the other but you couldn't be both at the same time yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? I think this is something that m most people will go through in some aspect of their lives, although maybe it's more enhanced when you are um, a cultural or ethnic or racial minority or um, within a sort of a paradigm of a gender, diverse gender spectrum, um, that uh, you operate thinking I have to be this thing and then you kind of go but I'm not really that thing I'm sort of this other thing um or you, you know and then that's I would say for like diasporic ethnic communities where you may 
be a yeah so so in my instance I think about you know being Chinese and growing up largely in white communities um, having a strong affinity to Māori and Pacifica um, communities because those were the communities that were available to me because I didn't grow up in like my Chinese community so much and um, feeling yeah like feeling ultimately identifying very young this acknowledgement of power is through whiteness um, and that not sitting comfortably with me so as we all do I'm sure you've got experiences where we sort of equip ourselves don't we with this with a, a, a code in which to operate and because you know that's what our parents have afforded us the privilege to have education and to speak in a certain way so we can get on with the work that they want us to do um, but then also I think that never set I've heard lots of stories um, from my community of many people going, I just wished I was white. Um, and I don't, I, I know that there are probably periods when I was younger where I may have felt that, but I think I also landed very early on with a kind of cynicism, even as a young, a very, very young person, that I do not wish to be white, but I know what whiteness affords me so I have a desire to subvert whiteness in order to do what I need to do what I need to do um and I don't know I mean yeah so yeah I don't know gosh there's so much to unpack there's, that, yeah there? there's a lot to unpack especially your comment about um whiteness I think especially when I was young I always thought that I just had a very limited understanding of racism which is interesting because I have experienced like a lot of racist behavior towards me and a lot of discrimination right so you think I'd have like this intimate understanding of it because I have have lived experience but I really didn't and it's only to be honest like recently where I've actually thought about racism in the terms of us being in the system of whiteness and you know wherever you land on the spectrum like it's a system that affects all of us um so that's so interesting that um you've made that point about whiteness and and not wanting to be white and having that understanding as a younger person um even though you didn't have like perhaps didn't have the language or like the academic understanding of it or all the big words that we know now as adults but it's really interesting that young Alice was like mm -mm. I do not want to be white. I do not participate. I do not yeah. want to participate in the system. It's pretty funny, isn't it? Like, because I know what you mean, like, around that coming to understand something that you would otherwise have a lived experience about. Like, I felt like that very strongly when uh, probably, I'd say probably eight to ten years ago, coming across the notion of micro a microaggression, right? So when I first learned about the notion of microaggressions and the cumulative effects that these have on a person's psyche, um, whether those are willing acts of, say, racism or sexism, or whether it's much more insidious and much more invisible, um, when I learned that and had a term for it and could actually explain that to others in a way that was like, 
I just felt that this person, something felt wrong and I couldn't put my finger on it. But to simply single out that person looked at me funny when I was waiting in the queue at the supermarket just simply doesn't feel like enough to justify that person was racist to me, right? Um, and yeah, that was like a real revelation because, yeah, it's like you've experienced it your whole life, but maybe we're just not equipped with the language to go, oh, that's that's what that was. Um, and, you know, I'm just, I feel so blessed that every day I'm learning new things about ways to find language to um, communicate what some of these things are, which are otherwise so nuanced and like, you know, it can be really hard to to um, re-communicate that. And as a storyteller, it can be really hard to find the language to tell the story of whatever that said thing is. So always learning, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, before we were recording, we were talking about the fact that we both just want to be lifelong learners because you're right, the power of language and the, the doors that are opens for you, like it, it validates your emotions, but it also then gives you the language that you can process your experience and then be able to tell other people, which is just so important. And um, what I really noticed about your work um, and your Mahi Alice is that you use your stories, um, you create experiences for like art and politics and, and race and all these other things to kind of collide in one space um, for people to also, you know, gain that language and to be able to unpack their experience. And um, I've had a couple of my friends who, who participated in other Chinese. And so I would love to talk a little bit about other Chinese with you. Um, my favorite, my, my baby, well, it's not really my baby. <laughs> it's like my unruly toddler or something like that. Yeah, I mean, other Chinese is probably a good example of, you know, as an artist, so the work, you know, so it's a, a live documentary theatre project with an intention of subverting um, the ways in which we represent stories of um, cultural or ethnic or racial communities. In this instance, like the Chinese community. So um, even just talking about other Chinese and what that even means it's you know if we track back to when you're filling out your census or you're filling out uh, important documents and you have to self-identify your ethnic group and you know this is nothing new to people but you know you have to tick a box and they say so and you, you can only tick one because someone has made a mistake in the system where you can't tick multiple boxes and for data reasons you know all of a sudden you have to reduce yourself and um you know, that investigation obviously has come from many other works that I've looked at, but in relation to other Chinese, it was even going, well, even if you tick Chinese as a box, are we talking culturally, nationally, ethnically? Um, what does that even really mean? And so that was the way. And so that work is about um, really breaking open the multiplicity of an identity like Chinese identity and um sort of interrogating it, um, although that sounds very um, official because I'm an artist, right? I'm not, I'm not a police officer. <laughs> You're making the reports, getting in numbers. Yeah, yeah get them in, <laughs> getting the data, doing fact-finding. Um, yeah, I'm an artist, right? So, yeah, my currency is storytelling So and, and creating spaces where people might share those stories. Um, so, yeah, the work is really about creating space where people can bring their stories forward. And, you know, of course, stories like that are going 
with a shared experience of having a whole lot of Chinese people in a room together, where um, we're not a majority um, in a settler colony like New Zealand, the first thing that you talk about is probably your racist experiences and this and that. And, you know, we have those shared experiences. But then this sort of quite fabulous thing happens where people start to talk about other stuff. Because, you know, we don't, Chinese people don't sit around talking about being Chinese, you know, you talk about art and politics, you know, all that stuff. And then you start to, and then all the nuances of people start to come through, which for your eyes, yeah, of course, because we, we see each other and our communities as whole entire people. But interestingly, within the paradigm of art making and storytelling, to do that in a space like a theatre is a really radical act or in an art gallery. It can be seen as quite a radical act. I would say largely because many of the consumers of those kinds of things tend to be your more white, middle-class, privileged, educated audiences who are really open to these stories. That's why they come to the theatre in the first place. Um, and uh, yet it's still not a, a common occurrence. So, yeah, it's, it's sort of about subverting even the form of, of theatre or mainstream or high-quality arts experiences, I think is the kind of terminology. So, yeah, so that's the work. And um, it's, I've been making, I mean, it's sort of first premiered in 2017 um, and it's been doing the rounds. I, I was... Uh, scheduled in a few different places, but COVID, <laughs> that was a bit oh, wobbly. <laughs> Miss Rona. <laughs> Miss Rona, she came and did, I did, um, yeah, Dunedin Arts Festival last year, um, Wanaka Festival of Colour, then another cancellation, and then we're looking to um, next year to move over, back overseas where the work was originally um, supposed to be two years ago. So, yeah, we're sort of going back to, and, and again, it's, um, it's not generic. It's got to be specific to the context in which the work is presented, which is why the digging for what's local and unique about those stories is really critical. So whether it's in Australia or New Zealand or even, you know, Singapore or, or wherever it's um, getting specific. Yeah. Yeah. It's so exciting to hear that it's um, going to be taken, like, in a, globally. That is actually awesome because, you know, in Aotearoa, like these conversations that have happened in the context of Aotearoa, but now we have like a different um, flavour added to the conversation, which is really awesome. I'd love to hear from you. What has been like the most surprising thing um, that's come out of other Chinese? And this can be like a personal reflection from your point of view, but what has like really, really surprised you? Or um, is there something that you've gained a deeper understanding or appreciation of? Yeah. It I mean, it's really, I mean, as an artist, you have to be authentic in your inquiry, right? Because if you're not alive to the work, if there's any sort of genuine, if there's any cynicism or sense of fatigue or um, distress in, in process, then I think it prohibits you from your practice being alive. So particularly when it comes, and this is very the challenging thing with um, making in a commercial context where if you represent work, it's kind of, you know, it just becomes day job, right? I mean, I've done, when I was acting and touring, you do, you know, you sitting on the side of the wings before you perform a show and you're sort of going through your grocery list moments before you go on stage. So, you know, you, 
So it was really important that for other Chinese that the work stays alive. But also I'm really mindful that in this work, because I have talked to thousands of people about their experiences and the framework tends to be the same. You might say, well, the stories end up being relatively similar and tracking to, you know. So in some ways I could argue there isn't a story that I haven't heard that hasn't been adjacent to one that I've heard before. Mm-hmm. However, the thing that is surprising to me with that work is that simply every time I will do a workshop, there will be a new epiphany I make about myself in relation to my identity and the community and what the needs of the community are. And um, the fact that that can happen and continues to happen is is truly profound. Like when I did the work last year in the Dunedin, we had a largely um, Mandarin-speaking cast and they mm-hmm. were mostly middle-aged women and mostly women who had migrated to New Zealand in the 90s. Um, they had come for their families. So many of their children were New Zealand born, but they, yeah. So that was new because, you know, we tend to attract um, a predominantly English-speaking um, group and we will largely facilitate in English. But these guys were Mandarin speakers. So the first thing that was a realization was that although they were all Mandarin speakers, most of them were actually Cantonese speakers, but they'd learned to speak Mandarin in order to connect to the Chinese speaking community in Dunedin. Um, so that was the first thing, because then I, when I made that realization, I sort of was like, oh, everyone's been speaking and not their mother tongue. They're speaking in another language, which in itself is sort of you know as we know with like verbal crossroads it's um in the ways that our our brains think um but it got to a point where we just simply stopped communicating in English now I'm not a Mandarin speaker so I had to lean on Sherry um who is a co is a co-creator in the work who speaks Mandarin and so so much of my experience of their experience was through Sherry um to the point in which I became excluded I'm not saying that in a sad way I was excluded from what the experience was because I simply didn't know what was being said um through that there was another kind of safety that I couldn't have anticipated which is because I as a well in that space a white person to them was not able to understand what was being said but was able to provide a provocation for them to discuss their own identity is that they were really really honest about their experiences um in a way that maybe they could never be to a a white person um and and it was that thing of you know we share stories of racism um and sometimes explicit racism and you tend to hear the stories right but to hear some stories from that community that were genuinely quite distressing um and in a lot of those stories you know you might get one or two but this was like a whole afternoon of it which was really surprising to me and I (laughs) she cried to Sherry afterwards because I was like I just don't know what to do about this this is it's so sad to feel like this is rife in their communities and and no one can help but then interestingly when we then tried to present this to our audiences because they knew the audience was largely white they didn't want to reshare those stories with the audiences so they didn't so those were stories that stayed private and they stayed Mm -hmm. in the workshop space and um 
Yeah. So, yeah, that was a long way of saying that. But, yeah, so it's no surprise to me that, say, in relation to this, say, Chinese people will be, or Asian people will be yelled at at the street and told to go back to where you came from. I mean, God, I've had that my whole life growing up. I've experienced that myself. Um, But for it to come from, like, a middle-aged Chinese woman who's, like, lived in Dunedin for 25 years and doesn't have any way to um, to process the effect that that has on her because she's got no one to talk to about it. I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it was really hard. But, yeah, so, and, and then in that way, that kind of, that is what then spurs the whole reason to continue to do this work, right, to continue to put this work on and to continue to um, fight for, and it's even awful that we have to fight, right? Ugh to exist but you know to carve out space where this can um we can shift this behavior this this collective cultural behavior we have around othering people who don't look like us yeah oh my gosh there's actually there's so much to unpack in what you just said but as you're talking i'm not going to lie i think like the you know that ball that you get off emotion slowly coming up my throat I'm like you know what Mal I have to I have to keep it together we're we're in conversation right now but it, it really it hurts my heart because I think when we like us younger folks we talk about racism so openly and then we we're not afraid I'm not I'm speaking generally now but generally we're not afraid to kind of say hey this happened to me and that's not okay but you know for the older folks in our um, community and the generations before, like, they just hold on to it because they're just very much in survival mode, right? Like, I've moved to this new land and I need to learn how to just just get by. And so that really, like, it breaks my heart, but it also doesn't surprise me to hear that all of these stories just came out of nowhere because, yeah, I, I really feel for our, our older um, ethnic um, folks because they just that they don't talk about it and they really keep it to themselves and sometimes I talk about this with my parents actually where I'm just like that happened to like that sucks like how come you didn't say anything earlier or you know how come you didn't tell someone as if we're back in school again how come you didn't tell the teacher but like how come you didn't tell someone and my every single time my parents have been like well we don't um, I can't remember what they said word for word but you know they've conveyed that sense of I don't have the right to to complain I just need to keep moving on with life and so you know even though those stories wasn't shared with the audience at the end of the day like you create like you and Sherry both create that space for them to even feel safe enough to bring that up Um, and they would have been holding on to that for years and years so that's so important and so special that your mahi created that space for those participants in Otipoti. Um, that means a lot. And um, that's so kind of going back to what you first said, um, how when other people share their stories, it helps you develop as a person, right? Because it connects with your spirit and that is so, so valuable. And um, a particular point that I really would love to talk to you about, about how, you know, the theatre is about, high quality arts and blah 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 all that kind of stuff and that is very true like I remember growing up I've just never felt connected to that space I was like that's not for people like me it's not for stories like me and I think for me as well like there's a huge 
tradition of oral storytelling anyway and so connecting with the arts I was like oh well you know my, my culture's got me covered that's not really a need for me but as I've gotten older the importance of representation and the concept of fighting to like make sure our voices are heard is really really important and so I think that's bloody awesome that you as a biracial um, wahine creating space in the theatre and making waves um, and so I'd love to hear more from you about you know what it what was it like being um, a person of colour in the creative space and um, you know what is it that you are really critical of? So um, it being a, um, a person, a person of a different kind of cultural uh, background or practice to that of what is the um, mainstream within a creative context is, um, yeah, it's it's not without its ca- <laughs> it's not without its hiccups. Um, I think art making, you know, is art and art making isn't as much as I I'm like it's for all, right? Being creative is for all. There should be no limitations on the ability for someone to think, to dream. Um, but obviously we have mindset poverty and um, then within the structures that we build around uh, creativity, whether that's professionally or systemically, tends to be built around whiteness and Western um, or Anglo-centric and understandings of art making. So... Um, Although, yeah, so it's like on the one hand, being um, a person of colour or a, a queer person, you know, makes total sense within our own communities that in order to legitimise what we do and validate what we do within the wider context of professional art making, it is largely a very white middle class, very, um, yeah, yeah, and, and very kind of typically patriarchal. And capitalist, but anyway, um, <laughs> so so all you know, things. yeah, all the things. Um, so it is, um, it is challenging, right? Because um, some of those systems have been set up based on a pro- a system that privileges those that can afford to not work, or can privilege those that have structures that support them financially. Um, the ability to pursue education or formal training outside of vocational training, you know, so all these kinds of systems, of course. Um, and then, of course, there's that whole thing of, like, where is my place? Because if there are, it's such a competitive um, professional market that if there are only so many spaces, that's where that horrible kind of meritocracy sets in where those that have um, – a long list of accolades or some kind of yeah so for that reason it is pretty challenging and I I'm totally I will my privilege within that is that I did go to um I went to art school and I went to um drama school I went to two kinds of um culturally creative schools um and that was because my parents were like yeah okay cool that we want you to legitimize what you do by going and studying it so I was really privileged that my parents saw that well my mum um yeah and then um uh, yeah so so there's that and obviously because I have been operating for so long um, within major institutes and organisations, I've had opportunities that others haven't. So, yeah, um, it's <laughs> sometimes the kinds of challenges that I um, observe within the creative sector in Aotearoa 
I'm like, has nothing changed? I'm like, truly has nothing changed? Like, I cannot believe, you know, what's this expression? Same shit, different asshole. Like, it truly is like you're going, um, whether it's a conversation about um, funding, opportunities, visibility, resource distribution, representation, decision-making, leadership, all of these things usually rest on who has the power. (laughs) Um, I think the other thing is it's surprising how risk-averse the creative sector can be towards change because it's sort of, some would argue that it's really under-resourced and kind of, and, and, desperate and so there's less of a desire to take risks on newness or difference because the fear is if you do that and you drive your audiences away or it's something is not successful that you'll lose the little that you've got so yeah unfortunately that mindset that um, the institutional mindset is we can't afford to do that because x y and z which we know is just simply not true which is why I think um, maintaining a healthy dose of um, independence and activism uh, can really help to cut through some of that system uh, institutional thinking. Um, I've worked inside organisations as a producer and in uh, management, like arts management, and although I feel very blessed and privileged that I got to learn a lot when I worked inside those kinds of organizations the moment I left I could really start throwing stones at the glass house to really you know I couldn't throw the stones when I was in the glass house but now I'm comfortably standing on the other side of the glass house I'll throw as many fucking stones as I want so yeah I think that really helps um there um because some some institutes are in a position where they aren't they aren't aren't able to lift a you yeah, even consider the the view that the glass house, there are stone, there are pebbles inside, or whatever this analogy is that it's terribly <laughs> trying to kind of put together. Yeah. That um, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I think you know I have kind of asked this not this exact same question, but kind of like this question to lots of different people who are in very different spaces, you know, in the legal world and in the medical world. And I've asked you, and now you're from the artistic world. And it's so um, sad and interesting how we kind of come to the same conclusions where, you know, there are people who have a lot of power and a lot of decision making and decisions where the funding goes and there's not, also combine that with the lack of representation um it's really disheartening but that's so awesome to hear that you're like yeah i'm going to keep throwing these stones <laughs> you know what and one day one of those stones will, will break that glass and now i'm really running away with this metaphor now. yeah i love this metaphor and it's going to shatter <laughs> i think it's interesting you know you need and i think in order to topple that you need people throwing stones you need people around the side like dismantling the little windows on the outside you need probably someone on the inside seeing where the coast is clear um you know you need um protective gear because you don't want to get glass shards on your in your eyes you know you need people who are just picking up 
stones for you to throw and, and sorting them into sort of piles of sizes. Like, um, and I think that's probably where I feel very grateful at the moment with the creative sector is we're starting to see um, pockets of different kinds of um, within the ecosystem emerge um, so it's not just about say artists it's about audiences it's about arts managers it's about people desiring to get into these roles it's about connecting it to other sectors or other industries it's um, about people um, yeah all those all these sorts of moving parts which really help to kind of change um, and I would say where data is really powerful the research to support um, the, the need for a change is, is starting we're starting to see that too so um, data that actually um, is able to paint a picture of what um, is measurably um, needs to happen like, needs to change or needs to go or measurably shows a need or a desire for something new so yeah data is kind of very powerful in that respect yeah I suppose in its own way like data is just a very particular form of storytelling and we kind of consume it in one particular way but it actually it has a lot of magic and power to it as well and you know that metaphor I really I really agree with that metaphor because that's so true about activism, right? If we want any kind of change to happen, people will need everyone everywhere doing their own little bit. Like we're not all going to change the world because we're all <laughs> throwing the, the stones at the window. And so you're so right. We all need to find our own way of doing it. And um, when you said the word audience, I, I thought of something, and I'm sure that there will be other people tuning in who also – um, who are wondering the same, but as an audience member, how do we help dismantle the glass building? Oh, this is a good point, eh? It's a really good point because we can, yeah, because we can be sophisticated. Yeah, so like this, this is kind of stumped me a little bit, but. I'm an audience member too, and when I choose to buy tickets to go see something, you know, that's where I'm, that's a one way that I can choose to support something or not support something. Um, but yeah, how do you, how do you show the demand as an audience member in an arts ecosystem? That's a great question, Emma. <laughs> because it's it's like. Um, this is the gripes I have about television sometimes. Like I saw, you know, Raised by Refugees, which is Pax Asadi's um, work that he's just put on um, Neon, which is a really great six-part um, series. Gosh, fingers crossed and toes crossed that it gets a second um, season because it was really great. And um, I just went – Oh, and the response has been really, really awesome. It's not just going like nice to have, like people are going nuts for this work because it's just really beautifully written, beautifully shot, beautifully performed and is a story that for so many of us are like, yes, that's my story. Um, and then it's just television networks will not back the fact that there is an audience to watch that television show. Um and it's, yeah, it's like kind of going like, yes, the demand is there. You just, but then if the bloody television network producers are all old white men who are like, yeah, well, you know, then it, it can be hard to, to prove that that's there. But yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't actually know. How do we prove that we're hungry? <laughs> mm. 
and we obviously know that we are i know i am for sure but yeah you're right that is um a really hard question how do we show that hunger and even if that hunger is not something that people at the top understand like this will translate to x amount of sales x amount of views blah 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 like it will still mean so much and I suppose that's where the whole capitalism nature of it kind of comes in oh, mm. so many systems to dismantle <laughs> I know let's we'll just well, I feel like we're getting through most of them tonight which is great I mean I do think and this is where you know the roles in in arts uh, institutes they are typically directed you know you might have an artistic director or you might have an artistic leader so a CE or a general manager and they are determining because of that model which is a kind of a Eurocentric model of having like a singular person who curates a program right but we're starting to move away from that because we're becoming a much more multiple or plural society and so that model might be dated for us so then it's about going if a singular person curates a, a program of work um, and it's really is it's colored or tinted by their taste they will still have to present that work to a board and that's a body and that body should be representative of the many facets of an audience or a community right so then I kind of go that's why it is really important that on your board you've got good representation in arts organizations um, because you've got to have someone being like I don't understand why all your work is like white or all your work is super super heteronormative or all this work is actually quite boring and it's dated it's like 15 years old or whatever you know whatever the question the board is asking now I don't think I can I can probably say that I don't, I'm reticent to say that policing taste you don't want to police people's taste right what my taste is is different to your taste and we should both be able to have that be a thing um but it definitely gets to a point where taste can be trumped by urgency social need and um social demand um in the art space so yeah i think as much as taste can account for some things in art making it's not everything um yeah yeah, but gosh, it's a hard one, isn't it? <laughs> that is a hard one. But I think, especially after this corridor, I think as an audience member, I'm going to be very mindful of what programs I support and what shows I go to. And I'm, I'm making, I'm holding, I'm gonna, you're going to make me accountable for this, Alice. Mm. Um, but I'm going to proclaim this now. I'm going to be more, um, put more effort into saying that was a really good job where I really appreciate that. Like, I'm so quick to like <laughs> whip out my phone start drafting this email when something hasn't gone quite right or that it's something felt unsafe or I just wasn't really appreciative of it but I never really do that when it's like a piece of work or art or service or whatever it is I'm I never like go out and make my way and saying that was actually really amazing I really appreciate appreciated that but I think I'm, I'm going to do more of that that's a really good point and I think that's where the advocacy work I've found myself moving more into the advocacy space over the last sort of two to three years and um, a big part of that is about gassing up our friends and ensuring that the good work is being celebrated as much as I'm quite quick to like poke holes at things like I've got such a sort of a ferocious um, appetite for um, picking holes 
and things and unraveling, unraveling them until there's nothing left, you know. But um, the ability to say, here's where someone's doing it well. Here's where someone's making effort. Here is where it, they're getting it right. We absolutely can and should be doing that because that's the other way that we can topple the balance is by, um, is it's being loud. It's about, you know, like I think about opening night at parties and art galleries and theatres, right? Um, you would set how much alcohol. So often in these spaces, like alcohol is always like drunk. That's like always a thing, right? And so how you determine how much alcohol gets drunk is based on like what your budget is, but also you might calculate who is in the audience and how much they're going to drink. Um, if an audience if we and I think the culture of drinking at say a theatre show, this is all coming to me in the moments. So you have to bear with me with this tangential thought. Is that like if it's an audience of fifty and you put out like a hundred glasses of wine, that's like two glasses of wine per person. Now at opening night, the doors open and everyone rushes to the wine table and they grab like two glasses each and they chug them back and then there's no wine left. What that might tell the um, the producer is like, oh, next time we do an opening night, we need to have more wine. You know, oh, that, that wine went really quickly. We should have more wine. And so I'm like, is there a way that this analogy can help, can be a way we can consider the way that we consume not just the opening night drink, but what the artist was trying to say or what the production meant or um, how something landed in us. I don't know. I don't, I don't know, actually. But anyway, something to keep in mind for us as we move forward. I am so glad that you went on that tangent because I understand exactly what you're trying to say about that because that's so true, right? Like when you're playing host and you notice these things, you're like, oh, my gosh, that was consumed quite quickly. We have to ensure that it's there for the next time. That is a good food for thought. That is so great. Yeah, because then you kind of go, I mean, this is going to sound really shocking, but, you know, like when you do have a curator that brings in, you know, like I'm, even I'm hyper aware of this, you know, when I did, whenever I've presented other Chinese, specifically that work, and look, I've presented lots of different works over the years, I'm going to have a larger um say Chinese Asian diaspora audience, South Asian, Southeast Asian audience come to see that work. Um, in many of these communities where say alcohol's not drunk, then they're not going to make a killing on the bar. I know we'd I mean, that was tangent to what I was saying before. But um, within a foyer space, you might visibly notice the presence of different kinds of faces, which theatres, and this is that awful thing where they come up to you and they're like, oh, it's so wonderful, it's so colourful, like kind of inherently racist things that they say. They don't mean to, but they kind of say it. But, you know, like they can, they can feel that shift. They can feel that difference. And the key thing is, like, how do you build on that? You know, how do you build on um, the momentum that, um, a, a shift can can have food for thought. Lots of food for thought. Oh my goodness! I wish I could keep talking to you forever and ever. Else. This has just been such a great time and great conversation with you. Um, but I have one last question for you. Um, well, in in my mind, I think empathy is a very very powerful tool um, for change. And I think if we ever want to see any change happen, especially here in Aotearoa, we need to empower a more empathetic Aotearoa. So, say I come to you and I'm like, Alice, you have the power to change one thing. 
to empower a more empathetic Aotearoa? What is that one thing? And it can be a cultural thing. It can be more of a concept. It could be a physical thing. It could be a policy. But what is that one thing for you? Mm. Ooh. We need we need to embed um, therapeutic processes into our education system, I reckon, so that people are cognizant of what of um, the ability to talk about feelings and process, um, and that can be in the everyday. I think that's what it is. So it's not about like so like we're talking about like mental wellness or mental health or or just an understanding of what your psyche is doing and how that's aligned with your what's happening inside not as its own thing but just inside everything that's happening so that we're growing people's emotional intelligence or emotional competence because I would my observation is that we are collectively not emotionally um we're not emotionally um fit (laughs) yeah and I think that is where we lead to drinking uh and doing things that enable that that connection and I think also the suppression of uh, feelings and emotions and then the the perplexity of um, feeling something and not being able to connect that to a communicative channel or a language. So yeah, that would be my thing. It's very good. You know, <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, that would I, be my one thing. It's so interesting that you've touched upon that um, as your one thing. I think life has been strange and especially last year was a really rough year for me and um, I won't go into the details on the show but uh, that one thing that you touched upon, I've been thinking about that a lot and I think it's a really important one thing. So I hope everyone kind of pockets that away um, along with the other gems that you have dropped in this um, corridor. So thank you so much for coming on to Headscarves and Good Yarns. You've definitely had some good yarns. We've had some good yarns, Amal. And look, anytime we, you want to chat, let's chat because it's an absolute pleasure. And it's really nice to be invited into a, a space to reflect on these things. Um, and, you know, we're evolving. So I might not think the same thing tomorrow, but um, hopefully uh, I will reflect on how I thought yesterday and that will make me um, strengthen something for, for this tomorrow. Yeah, Exactly. It's part of the lifelong learning experience, hey? Yes, that's come up a lot, so I'm I'm going to hold you to that. Yeah. <laughs> Ditto. Thank you so much, Alice. Thank you. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.